If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 7, we're going to read the first 24 verses. Really, what we're, we're going to end up looking at a big chunk of this chapter, and then next week we'll zero in and zoom in on, on what it means for, um, for us to drink the living water that Jesus gives. But as we, read, as we begin chapter 7, right, chapter 7 is telling you that the hostility against Jesus is, is increasing. Jesus keeps going back to Jerusalem knowing that it's dangerous, and so that Chapter 7 is just, here are all the swirling opinions about this controversial figure. Who is he? And it's in that context that Jesus says, judge me, and judge me rightly. And so let's do that as we read God's word. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil." You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And this is God's word. Uh, He has spoken to us today in love. Uh, That word is true and trustworthy. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus as he is, so that we might judge with right judgment. And for that, we need your spirit to open our eyes to help us trust him. And as we trust him, Lord, we need your help to handle the hostility of the world that comes by being associated with Jesus, who was hated by the world. 
So equip us to be Christ's faithful witnesses. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, it's time for confession. How long has it been since you judged someone? <laughs> right? Probably a lot sooner than we'd care to admit. Um, I know it happens every time anyone stands up and speaks, right? That's part of being a public speaker as people are judging or, or discerning, right? And we've all drawn conclusions based on what we think people are like, based on what we see or hear, Right? Even though we have Jesus' words, red alien or brown, do not judge because the judgment which you use will be used against you. That's, that's the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, ever since Jesus says those words, we, we still judge. And so that's why it's so surprising when Jesus tells us, I want you to judge, and I want you to judge with right judgment, and specifically, I want you to judge me. Right? Look at me, look at my works, listen to my words. And make a clear judgment on who you say I am. And so what I want to do this morning is, is join with the crowds and do that. Um, as Jesus is volunteering to be in the, in the defensive chair, so to speak. Uh, because if we judge Jesus with right judgment, it's going to equip us to handle the judgment that the world throws at us. And so let's, let's figure out how to judge Jesus rightly so that we can... Well, tame our judgmental hearts as well as respond to judgment like Jesus does. And so let's, let's jump, look at it this way. First, all right, let, point one is that judging is inevitable. You can't avoid it, right? Because I know somebody's going to say, why do we have to judge, right? We spent our whole lives trying to be decent people or at least tolerate people we disagree with, right? Judgment's so negative, the problem is, judging is just an everyday part of human life, whether you call it judging or not, <laughs> right? And if, if you want proof, I mean, just turn on the internet, <laughs> right? Social media, um, if you've ever been in middle school, high school, if you've ever been in a community or a family, right? Judgment's just inevitable, uh, it's an ordinary part of our relationships. We're always holding someone else to a standard that we have, and then we react to them based on the judgment that we have made of them and of their words. We just don't like to talk about it out loud that way. Right? Right? People talk about it. This is why they groan about Thanksgiving political conversations. They're avoiding judgment or flinging it, one or the other. <laughs> right? Or... Or why, even just after an ordinary family meal, right, you got Thanksgiving, we just came through it, and everyone's around, and there's, all, there's always that one, one person who says, well, who's going to cook the turkey next year? Because this year's yeah, a little drier, a little dry this year, right? We're constantly judging. We're constantly uh, evaluating. Uh, put, we have standards that we're holding others to, uh, that, that, that we are being judged and we're judging all the time. And so, how do you deal with that? Right? How are you responding to the judgment you receive? Right? Do you respond with grace and kindness? Do you join? I mean, our culture is full of judgment at the moment. Do you join in the anger, the anger and the hostility, the hatred, the, the division, the mocking? I mean, judgment is so often just blamed 
for the reason why we can't get along. Another way to, to respond to judgment is to just cave in to what other people want so they'll leave me alone. Right? Avoid conflict in order to keep peace. Right? How are you responding? You know, with that in mind, look at, look at Jesus. Right? Because part of what Jesus is experiencing is an ordinary part of being human, which is he's, he's under the microscope of everyone's standards, of the world's standards. Right? And in verse 24, we see Jesus volunteering to be in the dock, to be in the defense, and he says, judge me, see who I am, uh, with clear eyes. Judge me with right judgment. Right? And in our text, the first judgment comes from his family. Seems appropriate, right? This is often where our standards for judgment come from, are from our family. Right? So if you look, that's verses 1 through 9, and if you look at the context here, it, John tells us that Jesus was not going south to Judea and Jerusalem because it just wasn't safe for him. He's been hanging out in, the, in a rural area, avoiding the, 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 the political authorities in Jerusalem. And, and so along comes his brothers, or his brothers and sisters, at least his siblings. We're not sure exactly who they are. So this would be Mary and Joseph's other kids. And they say, Jesus, why don't you go to Jerusalem? It's the Feast of Booths, right? Because you want your disciples to see the works you're doing, and no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, because Jerusalem during a festival is just full of a lot more people, right? This is, this is prime opportunity to, to restart your political campaign. Now, what do they mean by that? I mean, one, they're either making fun of Jesus... Because the last thing that happened was Jesus just lost a whole lot of disciples when he said, I am the bread of life. And it says many of his disciples walked away. So perhaps his brothers are thinking like everyone else, right? If your campaign is lagging, you need to make a splash. You need to do something public. You need to be seen. So go make yourself famous in Jerusalem. Perhaps, at the, perhaps that's what they're after. But if you know what John just said, that if you go to Judea, people are trying to kill him there, to us, the reader, it sounds like his own family is saying, go to Jerusalem, into the lion's den, where people want to kill you. And then it says, his own brothers did not believe him. Right? Jesus' family has looked at Jesus, looked at his works, they grew up with him, and at this stage, they don't believe. They don't trust him. They don't believe that he is who he says he is. This is, a, I think, a helpful part of Jesus' humanity because I know that some of our most painful and formative judgments that we have received so often come from our family, the people that we expect to love us. And with that in mind, that's why it becomes shocking that Jesus Christ isn't controlled by the judgment of his family, right? Or the judgment of the world. Those are the two things we're going to look at. He's not controlled by their rejection, nor is he controlled by needing their praise. He has the ability to say no to his family. And then he gives a verdict on their thinking, right? Jesus says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. 
The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast. Or there's a little footnote that says, I am not yet going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So Jesus says to his brothers, hey, your time is always here. And I think what he means by that is, you're always, you always appear to be in charge of your time. You can do what you want with your time. You go. But for me, my time is dictated by my Father in heaven. My time has not yet come. It's, it's got to be an allusion to his death on the cross. And this is just part of the, the psyche of Jesus and just the way he lived. He lived a life of faith completely dependent on God the Father. And so to the point where he can say, like the psalmist, uh, my times are in your hands. And so Jesus will not go to the feast because, to satisfy his family because he is controlled by the judgment of his father, his heavenly father. And so here's what's really interesting. Let's, let's, here's the point. Right? It seems restrictive, like bondage, to serve a God who tells us how to spend our time. Right? Jesus is saying, I, I'm not in charge of my time. I'm waiting for God to tell me what to do and, and when to go and where to go. But for Jesus, it actually sets him free because he's not controlled by what others think. He's actually able to say no. He can say no to his family. And I know in our modern culture, families kind of spread out and scatter, and it's, 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 we're not controlled by family the way the ancient world was controlled by family. In a shame-honor culture, one of the things you don't do is say no to family. And so you can compare Jesus, it looks like bondage, but he's free to say no. And if you look at the world, they appear free, right? We can do whatever we want when we want it. But their everyday life is controlled by the judgment of others. Either needing validation from the world, or just trying to avoid their judgment, and have a hard time saying no to people around them. Right? I mean, that's, that's part of what happens in verse 13, Right? No one speaks openly about Jesus because they're terrified of the judgment of the Jews. So on the one hand, Jesus looks restricted because he trusts his father, but he's actually free, able to say no and, and be okay being rejected by his family and the world. And the world is actually in bondage, trying to live their life by their own terms, controlled by what other people think. So how about you this morning? How about me? How do we handle the judgment of the world, you know, our neighbors, or the judgment of our family? Judgment's inevitable. You, you, you can't live in this world without somebody approving or disapproving of what you're doing. And Jesus alone perfectly is able to bear the judgment and rejection of the world and not be controlled by it. And so what that means, if we're going to take Jesus seriously here, when he says, judge me with right judgment, that is a much harder command than it sounds. Because our judgment is skewed. It's so often um, conflicted because we care about our, the judgment of our family and the judgment of the world. That's the second point, is, is human judgment is so often incompetent or inept. Pick, pick your I word. 
right? Our judgment skills are incompetent because we care so much about what the world thinks and what, what our family thinks. Jesus' family is really just a case study of the world. Right? Now, before, before jumping into what this means, you probably caught this, right? That Jesus said, hey, I'm not going to the feast, and then he went to the feast. And you go, wait, did Jesus just lie? And it sounds like John knows this sounds awkward because it sounds like he deceived his brothers because we have some manuscripts that say Jesus did not yet go up to the feast, or I'm not going to the feast yet. Uh, there's a little footnote in the ESV. There should be a little one next to it. Um, that's some of them. But I think it's the way the story is told, right? Context is king. Right? Jesus says, I'm not going with you, brothers, not on your timetable. My time has not yet come. And if his time has not yet come, it means now is not the time I'm going. That doesn't preclude him from going later. He's just saying, no, I'm not going with you guys, right? Now, where did Jesus' brothers get their judgment from? Why did, why did they disbelieve Jesus? And, and Jesus' answer is, is the world, that they are, they are a ex- prime example of worldly thinking, a worldly way of approaching him. That it, You put it this way, that Jesus' family and the Jews that want to kill him all those who don't believe, they're all on the same team with skewed judgment that Jesus is trying to persuade them to believe. Now, if, you, if you jump down to verse 45, we didn't read it. You can get an idea what the, the world, the author, Jewish authorities are like because they sent some, some police, some officers to, to arrest Jesus. And then in verse 45, it says, they came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring Jesus? Right? You had one job. Uh, and they responded that no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, well, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? And so you can hear the pressure, right? They're saying, has anyone like us believed in him? And surely you want our approval, so you better believe like us. All right? And you, you feel the pressure that the officers are getting from the world. No one important believes in Jesus. Why would you side with the crowds that are accursed? They don't know the law like we do. They're a bunch of backward, ignorant sheep. Right? That's not really the attitude you want from church leaders, by the way. Right? If, if church leadership looks down on, on the people as, as sheep and ignorant and cursed who are not as enlightened as we are, right, that's not going to be a healthy relationship. Now, the, the point is, right, the authorities are using their power and influence to say, you have to think like me and judge like me and use my standard for judgment. And we find Jesus to not be true. Right? There's a whole lot of irony. Right? These are guys that are claiming to know the Bible They're the ones who reject him, hate him, and want to kill him. And those who are accused of being scripturally ignorant are the ones who are actually closer to the truth (laughs) as they hear Jesus' teach. And so here's the teaching. Um, The world hates Jesus, and if the world hates Jesus, our judgment's going to be affected by that hatred. 
we're always going to be affected by the world's opinion of us. Because right? I want to avoid judgment. I hate having the microscope on me. I hate somebody telling me I'm wrong. Right? Trying to avoid the world. So what does Jesus mean by the world here when he says, the world hates me? And in, in John, one of the ways he talks about the world is that it's a whole system, a whole way of thinking and believing. Right? It's, a, it's a whole system of priorities and loves. Um, it's a whole way of existing where, where your, your cares are, are formed by right now and right now alone. Right? Your time is always here. It's about getting influence. It's about getting power right now. It's about getting what you want right now. Right? And that shapes and affects and infects the world's thinking when they judge Jesus. Right? I mean, don't you feel that pressure? What if I miss out? There's stuff happening all the time. My time is now. If I don't do it now, I'll never get to do it. Death is lurking in the background. And so if you combine the pressure of I got to get what I want right now with a fear of judgment because God tells us what we want right now is evil, that's going to affect your judgment of Jesus. In other words, if, you, if you're living for right now and Jesus is telling you that what you want right now is wrong and then he says, judge me rightly, it's going to be really hard to not be biased against him. And this, this is the battle for belief, to reject the world's standards and embrace God's. Because right? you're always going to have the world with different standards judging us, judging Jesus, condemning, mocking, telling you you're wrong. And the problem is for us to even judge rightly with right justice, right judgment, you have to be free from the control of the world's judgment. Not be afraid of what others think. So what does right now thinking look like? Maybe this will be helpful. One of the famous examples of right now thinking, foolish right now thinking, I would add, uh, in the Bible comes from Esau. All right, Jacob's brother in Genesis. Right, Esau is the oldest brother. He's the one who's destined to inherit everything. It's just part of how the Old, Old Testament families work, right? Esau, you're, you're destined to have your father's blessing and his, most of his material property, and then you're going to be in charge of his estate, right? You're at, you're at top just by virtue of being the oldest. Well, one day, Esau comes back from the field hungry, famished, starving, and his brother Jacob, whose name means deceiver, um, basically takes advantage and says, well, you can have this delicious stew I'm cooking if you sell me or trade me for your birthright. And what does Esau do? Like a ravenous wolf, thinking only with his stomach, thinking only about right now, says, what good is my future if I'm going to die? Right? And so he trades his birthright for a bowl of soup. He throws away his future for a light momentary pleasure. Was he going to die? No, he was just too lazy to heat up his ramen, <laughs> right? I mean, it's going to take a little work, but it's not like there was no food around. He was just exaggerating. And what the writer of the Hebrews does with that, it says, 
as you're, you're striving to get the grace of God, don't be like Esau. Don't commit sexual immorality and don't be unholy. I always go, okay, Esau just traded a bowl of soup. What does that have to do with what I do with my body? And part of what the writer of the Hebrews is getting at is what motivates unholiness is I feel like I have to get what I want right now or I'm going to die, which is very childish. If you've ever parented any children, at some point they've said, if you don't give me what I want, I will not survive this day. The sun will set and you will be sad. <laughs> right? But is that not how our, the world thinks? Right? Our cultural moment right now is so heated because people who don't know the hope of eternal life only have right now. They can't comprehend a future so good with God that allows you to say no to your desires right now, that allows you to stand up to the world's judgment. And so you add the pressure of also what the world thinks, that if you don't think like us, we're going to blast you and condemn you and shame you. It's got an awful lot of pressure to live for right now, to be affected by the world's judgment. Because everybody in this room wants something now. Go look back at your prayers. There may be good things we want now, but so often... Our time is not yet. Right? And so our judgment of Jesus is skewed. It's cloudy. We're plagued by what one pastor calls cosmic childishness. <laughs> um, and so where's that showing up? You know, where do you feel that pressure to, to cave into the world's way of thinking? That I have to get this now. I know what God thinks, but I want this more. Right? Now, Jesus says later in this chapter, if you knew the joy and satisfaction and the love and the welcome that you're going to get when you come to know the Father, your right now once are going to seem small because he says, everyone who comes to me will never hunger or thirst. You'll have rivers of living water flowing from your heart in verse 37. And he said that talking about the Spirit, which is being satisfied by God himself. You can have God with you, making the world's judgment seem small. Right. So how do you look at your wants? How do you look at the world's judgment and the pressure that's telling you you need this? Right. It's really important, right, to look at the world's judgment and the standards as well as your loves and your wants and look at it from a perspective of time. Because how do you look at your loves from 10 years ago? and your wants, and your priorities? What about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, as a child? What was that thing you collected as a kid that's now in the trash? Right? But if you didn't have it then, you surely were going to (laughs) die. See, that's the heart of, that's the battle for belief in a world that rejects God. Right? That's what happened to Adam and Eve. Right? The serpent said to Eve, God doesn't really care about you. He doesn't have your future in mind. You need to eat this fruit right now because the moment you eat it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve said, I want that now. And Adam acted like he wanted that now to be like God. 
instead of waiting. And that cosmic childishness continues to infect every human heart. And so when Jesus says to us and to the world, your time is always now, but mine has not yet come. Here's a person who is not skewed by human judgment, a worldly love of right now, even as he loves the world and sent by his Father to love us. So the question is, I'm hoping you hear this, how do you escape judgment? You can't avoid it. In In this chapter, Jesus says, you're either going to be judged by the world the world's going to condemn you. Right? The world hates me. And then he says later in John, if the world hates you, it's because it hated me first. So you've got to expect that kind of hatred if you embrace Jesus' standards. Or you're going to be judged by Jesus for your works being evil. The world hates me because I testify that their works are evil. There's no way to, to escape judgment. It's inescapable. Right? It's inevitable. Our judgment is inept. And eventually we see that judgment, you, you can't avoid judgment in this world as human beings. It's going to come from the world or Jesus. And so if you look at this, Jesus in verse 14, he goes up to the feast and begins teaching. And everyone listening to him, including those sent to arrest him, are just blown away by the depths of his teaching. And he knows the scriptures and the human heart. And then he goes on to say, here's why... You can't trust the world's judgment. Here's why it's wrong. Here's why you need to judge rightly. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Why should you trust Jesus? First thing he says I'm telling you the truth. And you, you can trust that I'm telling you the truth because I don't care what you think. <laughs> right? I mean, if he's living for the Father's glory, it means he, he doesn't need yours. He, he wants us to believe. And in that case, the Father will glorify him. But here's why you can trust Jesus. He's telling the truth. In him, there's no falsehood. He's not using you to pump up his own ego, like everyone else who speaks on their own authority. And then you add the world that doesn't tell the truth because they're living for right now because you compare the Jesus telling the truth to the authorities, well, the truth is not convenient for them because what do they say about Jesus? They say in verse 52, all the way at the bottom of the chapter, Jesus can't be the Messiah because no prophet has ever come from Galilee. That's not right. And to which we would say, guys, have you read your Bible? Have you met Jonah or Elijah? Right? They're kind of famous Old Testament Bible figures. Right? Now, the reason anyone lies is because they're cared about, they care about their own glory, their own ego, obsessed with right now. And Jesus says, you can trust me because I seek the glory of my Father. I have no need to lie. It's not like those whose time is now. Right? Which is amazing because that means Jesus is willing to keep, the tr- keep telling the truth 
even though he's going to continually be judged and condemned wrongly, knowing that as he tells the truth, it will put him to death. Right? Not even that judgment is enough to get him to change because he cares about his Father's glory. Second, Jesus tells us, you should trust me because I keep the law. Right? I keep the law as a means to love people. I keep God's law of love. Because the authorities are looking at the crowds with disdain and they're claiming authority to teach God's law and they, and they use God's law to condemn Jesus and his good works and they're saying, well, how can you say you keep the law if you're breaking Sabbath? You healed a guy on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do work on the Sabbath. Right? And Jesus says, your judgment is way off. Moses gave the law and none of y'all are keeping the law. And the way you know he's accusing everyone, he's saying, why are you trying to kill me? Which I, I wouldn't surprise me if that was a subtle way of saying, hey, have you read the sixth commandment? Don't, don't murder. And he gives this argument that says, you want to kill me because I made well one person on the Sabbath, but you in your pursuit to keep God's law are willing to remove a, a body part, a piece of the body, circumcise on the Sabbath, right? If the law says you should be circumcised on the eighth day, and the eighth day falls on a Sabbath. You're willing to set aside and say, keeping the circumcision commandment is more important than the Sabbath commandment, so let's do it on the Sabbath. And that act involves removing a, a small piece of the human body. And then he says, well, you guys who claim to keep the law are mad. Did I put someone's body back together? I made them well. Probably referring to the, the healing of the blind man, in, or the, the lame man in chapter 5. In other words, Jesus says, who is actually keeping God's law of love? Right. You know, the, the world's judgment is inept because they twist the truth to staying in control, and they don't truly care about keeping the law, not the way Jesus does. And so why would you trust Jesus' judgment? Because he tells the truth, knowing it's going to lead to his death. And he heals people. He does the loving thing, even though he knows it's going to offend people around him. Right? This, this is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. <laughs> this is Christ the Messiah. And so if judgment is inescapable, how do we escape God's judgment? And this is where it will lead us to the table. When is this conversation happening? John says it's during the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this feast was celebrated in the fall after the Day of Atonement. It's kind of the, the tail end of all their, their annual feasts. And part of the purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles or booze is, is that they would live in tents to remember when God provided for Israel in the desert when they were living in tents in tabernacles. Right? And so one piece of the Festival of Booze was saying, remember how God provided for you in the past. And how did God provide for Israel in the desert? And that's the story of Exodus 17. Right? Because here's God's people, Israel, they're in the wilderness. They're like us. They care about right now and they're thirsty. They've already seen God rescue them from slavery to Egypt. They've seen God's power to provide, yet their cosmic childishness raises its ugly head and they start grumbling. Moses, we have no water. 
why did you, and, and insert God, right? They're blaming God here. Why did you drag us out into the desert to just kill us and our kids and our livestock? We're dying of thirst here. And they get so worked up that they're ready to stone the one God sent to help save them. Now you can start to hear the background of John 7, right? Jesus and Moses taking hostility. And so God tells Moses, go get your staff that you use to strike the Nile, and I, the Lord, will stand before you on the rock, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And so Moses did so, and they drank. And what's amazing in this passage is that God says to Moses, I'm going to stand on the rock before you. And the phrase before you in the Old Testament is used in judicial context to describe the ones being judged. So Yahweh, the Lord, says, Moses, judge me. I'm going to take judgment. And so I stand before Moses to be judged. And even though it is Israel's grumbling that's on trial, they, they're, they're, this is a failure of belief on their part. And you, you hear this in Deuteronomy 19 that says, both parties in a dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and judges. So if you're standing before someone, right, buckle up, you're about to get judged. So the Lord is standing in the place of the accused, the guilty ones, on the rock in Exodus 17. And then number two, it says he's standing on the rock, and it's the rock Basically, the Lord is saying, I am the rock. Strike me. And Moses takes the staff of judgment and hits the rock, and waters of life flow out, and the people drink. And so what's amazing is the Lord takes the judgment of God's grumbling, childish people so that they might drink living water. And what does Jesus say about himself in verse 37? Whoever believes in me will have living water flowing from their heart. But how do you get that living water? He's talking about the Holy Spirit, but we get that living water because Jesus Christ put himself in the dock. He submitted to God's judgment and the world's judgment. The world, the world said, you're guilty, we don't want you, die. They nailed him to a tree. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. To use the terms of Exodus, Jesus, the rock of our salvation, was struck for our iniquities so that we might be forgiven, that we might be judged and found not guilty in Christ. We are guilty, but we're declared not guilty in Christ. We're given Jesus' commendation, Right? also that we could have his life-giving presence which equips us to say no to the world because we have God with us. So, judgment's inescapable. You're going to be judged by God and the world. Whose side are you on? Right? Who are you going to run to for refuge? Only the God of the gospel in Jesus Christ takes judgment upon himself in order to set us free from all condemnation so that we might drink and be satisfied. Right? The world looks at those who think differently. They condemn. Jesus forgives his enemies. And so the text this morning is, is calling us, right? Judge with right judgment. 
look at Jesus. Who do you say that he is? And I'm hoping you see this is someone who loves God more than us, (laughs) but he also loves his neighbor because he cares about keeping his father's will. And he loved us even to death on a cross. So come and be joyfully judged with Jesus and let him protect you because he is the rock of our salvation. As the Psalms say, that is someone who should cause us to have great joy (laughs) because we're forgiven and provided for. If you do this, Flannery O'Connor says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. (laughs) I mean, if you take Jesus' words seriously here and you fast forward to later in John, if you side with Jesus, the world is going to condemn you. They're going to judge you. They're going to treat you as, as an outsider, as odd if you love Jesus and keep his commandments. But at that stage, it's okay, because you know that the only eyes that matter are God the Father's. And because of Jesus, he's pleased with you. Let's pray. Father, we come to give you thanks for Jesus who was judged by you, judged by the world so that we might be set free to be like him in the world. And so I pray you give us eyes to see that you would help us believe, trust that Jesus tells the truth, and then you would also equip us by your Spirit uh, to be joyfully odd in the world so that we might be Jesus' faithful witnesses, that he tells the truth, that the tomb is empty, and that the new creation is coming, and that by grace uh, we've gotten in on that, and that our neighbors can too. So equip us now as we come to the table to to taste and see that you are good now, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.